You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 525 for June 10th, 2020. On today's show, drummer Chad Taylor. This show exists because listeners become members. You can become one too for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Big thanks to Jeff Albert, who will be my guest next week for becoming a member. Chad Taylor's new album with Brian Settles and Neil Podgurski is called The Daily Biological. I am so happy to have you here. Uh, we're talking about a new trio record called The Daily Biological that features uh, you on the drums, uh, one of my favorite musicians and saxophonists, Brian Settles, on the saxophone, and then a guy who's playing I did not know as well um, and have realized the error of my ways and am digging into his own music as well, uh, and that's Neil Podgurski on piano. And one of the things that I really dig about this record is that it it has the sound, you know, when you have like those, whether it's a, a romantic relationship or a, a friend relationship where you can be with someone and not have to talk, like you can just kind of be in each other's presence. And Ooh, this, yeah. this record kind of had that feeling for me. Like, obviously there aren't long stretches of silence <laughs> on the, it's not a John Cage album, but um, there, there are times all throughout it when it just feels like whatever needs to be happening can be happening. Like there's not, there's not some push to like, Oh, I got to do this thing here. or I got to show what I can do in this bit here. It's just like whatever the music needs at any moment seems to be what's happening, which I found very satisfying. Um, and it just, it sounds like three people who go way back, which I believe is the truth about the three of you. Right? It is. Yeah. A lot of trust, you know, that, that we all have in each other. I, I met Brian and Neil around the same time, probably in 1993, 92, 93, something like that, yeah, at, at the new school in New York. So the, I, I met Brian, I remember he was he he was smoking a cigarette outside of the new school, and I was just like, yeah, can I get a smoke? <laughs> this is back when you, you know, right. people used to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, we started talking, we hit it off right away, started playing together. 
we became really good friends. So I, I you know, I was from Chicago and, and Brian was from DC. So a lot of the breaks, uh, school breaks, I would go with him to, to his family in uh, DC. And it was amazing because they, they treated me like I was part of their family. We'd talk about music, we'd hang out. Also, I mean, this is sort of a side note, it's pretty funny. So Brian went to Duke Ellington High School and he was also friends with Dave Chappelle. Chappelle came to New York around that same time, but we used to go hang out with Chappelle, be part of his entourage or whatever, <laughs> which was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. And uh, Chappelle used to come out to our gigs and stuff. And I remember he used to tease like, you know, one day I'm going to have my own show. I'm going to do my own show and I'm going to, I'm going to hire you guys to be the backing band. Of course that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't hold him, you know, I don't hold him accountable uh, against that. You know, anyway, most people who say things like one day I'm going to have my own show are not telling the truth. They I'm may think really they are. Have yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah he I'm was the one do. in a million chance. Also, I love <laughs> the idea that a young Dave Chappelle's entourage included a, a bunch of forward-thinking jazz musicians. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that's how it ought to be. Mm-hmm. I would like every comedian. And he I mean, I'm t- he really appreciated the music. I mean, he he plays piano and he really appreciated the stuff that we were doing. You know, I remember there was a there used to be a cafe on First Avenue and First Street called uh, the First Street Cafe. It could only hold maybe 10 people. And he would be one of those 10 people, you know, just there checking out the music. So yeah, that, that, that was amazing. sounds like from that story that you and Brian uh, had like hit it off personally, even before musically. Is that right? Like you just got yeah. along even yeah, before you. Uh, maybe both at the same time. Okay. Yeah. We hung out. We listened to music all the time. We played music. And yeah, he, he was, he was one of my, one of my best friends. Still is. You know. And Neil, I remember, uh, Neil, I remember going by a practice room at the new school. And uh, my experience with music school, I mean, I didn't really like it. I, had, I sort of had a chip on my shoulder. I had a bad attitude. I, I'm surprised I even graduated from the new school because I, I almost flunked out of, out of school. 
But uh, I remember one of the things that used to aggravate me is this, the way people would practice. It was almost as if people were just playing all the stuff they already know how to play and just sort of showing off. And I remember walking down the, the hallway and I heard, I heard this piano player. I was like, Who in the, what in the world is going on? I could really hear this guy working out ideas. And I walked in. And I was just listened for a little bit. And, and another thing, he was uh, Neil was playing, I think it was an Andrew Hill tune. It was either an Andrew Hill tune or Elmo Hope tune. I was like, wow, I, you just don't hear people doing that. And I said, man, you sound, you sound great. And we hit it off right away and uh, started playing sessions together. Then we lost contact for a little while. I graduated. He moved to uh, Philly. And we reconnected basically because of a grant. Or it was a it was a project that uh, you know, like the Orchestra Hall of Philly. I forget the name of it. Anyway, they had a, a program where they were giving away a grant. It was like an artist in residency. And Neil contacted me and was like, "Hey, we should apply for this thing because you know it was a good chance we could get it." I was like, "Cool." I hadn't heard from him in a long time. Let's do it. So we got together with Brian and we all wrote music for it. And it was amazing because we sort of, uh, we hadn't played together in probably, I don't know, 15 some years, but it felt like we just started from where we left off, you know? Music sounded great. We recorded it. We applied for the grant. We didn't get the grant. I thought Neil was just devastated. He was he was like, okay, you know, I guess that's the end of that. Oh well, we tried, and I was pissed. I was like, are we we're just gonna end this band because we didn't get the grant? That's ridiculous. Let's keep going. Let's keep doing this thing. Yeah, and that's what we did. You know, we kept we yeah kept getting together, kept rehearsing. That eventually turned turned into uh, the project. Well, good for you for <laughs> having that. Uh that desire to stick to it because I'm so glad we get to hear this music. It It's cool that uh, this music was written, you know, by each of you, each of you contributes music to the project. And I think one of the things I like about that is that honestly, I could believe that all of the music was written by any one of you or collectively, you know, it has such a band sound to it that uh, I wasn't listening to it thinking like, oh, okay, well, this is the piano player's piece and here's the one the drummer wrote, uh, which right. I think is, I mean, speaks well, I guess, to the collaboration. When when any of you would bring a piece to the band, did it get kind of fleshed out by the three of you together? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's some irony. So like the first tune on the record is called The Shepherd. And I remember when Brian first brought that tune in, I just did not get it. I was like, what in the world is this thing? You know, it's not a matter of if I didn't like it or not like it. I just didn't understand it. Now it's my favorite tune on the record. <laughs> you know, that's like <laughs> the first tune on the record. But I remember he brought the thing and I was like, what, what in the world is this thing? And it was a process where we really just worked it. We just kept on playing it over and over again until it started to uh, to, to make sense, you know? I mean, that was a process for with a lot of the tunes where we, we just, we'd come up with an arrangement and, you know, it might work, it might not work. If it doesn't work, we, we switch it up, tried different ideas until, uh, you know, we got really comfortable with the music. 
We didn't. I, I'm trying to think how many rehearsals we had. We probably had uh, the way we did it is uh, because we we all live in different places. I live in Philly. Brian is in D.C. Neil lives in uh, Pennsylvania, but uh, in, in a rural area, in Bucks County. So we all uh, did a rehearsal at each other's house. Three rehearsals, and we played a couple gigs, and then we went in and uh, made the made the record. The Jazz Session is the oldest jazz interview podcast. It's the original. It's been on for 13 years now, more than 500 episodes. Season 12 is drawing to a close for the summer hiatus, which is in July and August. And during that time, members will continue to receive cool episodes. You can become a member now for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now back to the show. stick on the idea of the shepherd for a minute the first track uh on the album and will you say more about it not making sense like is that a question of the form or what what is it that you had to get your head around and then what became clearer as you played it that's a good question <laughs> everything <laughs> i had all these different sections and i just didn't understand how they related to one another i was like what you know it was just, it was a hard tune. It was a hard tune, and it, it, it just felt uh, it didn't feel connected at the time when we were rehearsing it. Now it feels complete. When I listen to it, I'm like, wow, of course it all makes sense. But it just, I just didn't understand how the, the different sections work together. But Brian, I mean, he, you know, Brian is really something. I think I, I don't. He's one of my favorite tenor players and he, he's always had his own concept and his own sound and, and there's just a maturity about his playing that has always really astounded me like when i first started playing with brian he was coming out of like train in 1967 like his unbelievable energy and stamina and ideas and uh, i was like wow what in the you know who is this guy and then the older he got, it's like the more mature his playing is. I, I, I think we're almost the same age. I think he's, uh, you know, mid-40s. But he plays now as if he's like in his 70s. <laughs> 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 it's, really, it's really something, man. The maturity of his playing and, and, and his composition is, is really something else. I remember the first time I ever learned that he existed was in uh, 2012 um, when I was on the my Jazz or Bust tour, and um, I stayed with the folks who own uh, Cuneiform. And the mm-hmm. during that 
weekend that I was there, I went and saw Brian play an unaccompanied solo saxophone set. And I mean, I wasn't more than wow eight feet from him. Probably, you know, it was a very small place uh, where the gig was going on, and you know, it was oh, kind of wow. dimly lit, and it was just him playing tenor. And I was by the end of it, I was like, I don't know what I was doing before that I didn't know this guy existed. But clearly, right. a massive oversight on my part. And so then I started, you know, digging into his music and uh, had him on the show and that kind of thing. But and I just there's just nobody who sounds like him. Um, which that's a harder thing to say and be true. I mean, yeah. What's that? I was just gonna say that's a hard, these days I feel like it's harder to say that about a lot of people, like people who just instantly are just like, Oh, there he is. Yeah. And, but, 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 but what he said, the story who sounds like him. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, he'd worked on his sound. Uh, he really worked on his sound. I feel like that's something that a lot of players haven't done. You know, I mean, I remember when uh, when we first met, you know, we would just talk about sound, like the sound of tenor players, the sound of Dexter Gordon, the sound of Lester Young, train sound. It's, it's something that he really put a lot of time and energy into just developing his personal sound on the horn. So, Chad, will you talk to me about the pieces that you contributed, the three uh, that you wrote for this album? So there's a song called um, In Between Sound and Silence, which is a song that I wrote for, for Neil. So something about, really not just Neil, but all of us, is, is we all studied uh, classical music, uh, and we still do, really. Uh, at least Brian and Neil, I don't really study, study classical music anymore, but Neil takes lessons weekly uh he has a classical teacher and and my father was a classical pianist uh actually he was actually a prodigy and when growing up he used to play uh a lot of chopin i was one of his favorite composers and so that piece i, I should have was thinking about chopin when i uh, wrote that uh but i wanted to come at it at a different way so you know it almost has like this yeah, free jazz, you know, train, Rashid Ali, like interstellar space area that we start in. But by the time we end it, we're in, you know, 
uh, more more of a space like Chopin, which is sort of an outrageous idea. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if I had a dollar for every uh, Rashid Ali train piece that ends in a Chopin piece, <laughs> I would not have any dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but that was sort of that was sort of the concept of the piece, yeah. Brian too, he's really into the saxophone, this the instrument. I mean, of course he's into jazz music and other music too, but he's really into classical saxophone players too. You, you know, you can hear it in his playing. He's really into the technique of the saxophone, and I think that comes that comes out in that piece. And so talk to me about the other two uh, pieces that are on here as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, we play Matape. That's a piece I wrote a couple of years ago. It's very simple, but it's sort of about building this simple idea into something else. You know, I'll tell you, the, the, this line just repeats and repeats until, almost until you're sick of it, and then it just goes somewhere else. I also recorded that composition with James Brandon Lewis, uh, we did a record uh, that came out live in Willisaw. And then there's another piece. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Uh, Recife, right? Yeah. That is a piece that was inspired by uh, Jerry Allen, who I, uh, I've always been a, a big fan of. And the idea is just sort of having a rhythmic independence happening where, you know, everyone's sort of in their own space together but in their own rhythmic space. And again, it's this line that sort of repeats, and then there's sort of a, a, a counter rhythm that happens. And uh, yeah, then we're off. take a moment to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible starting with the members who support it and also the respect sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and dave rabel for the logo chuck ingersoll is the voice of the intro you can hire him at hearchucknow.com follow the jazz session on twitter at jazz sesh j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h and on instagram at the jazz session I still post on social media, but I never go on social media anymore. I post via a third-party app, so I don't see replies to anything. So if you want to get in touch with me, the best way to do that is jason at thejazzsession.com. You can take a second, if you would, and rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you want to keep up to date on my various podcasts, poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now, back to the show. 
Chad, I wanted to, to step away from this record just for a minute because um, fairly recently, as we're speaking, within the last uh, several weeks, we lost uh, Henry Grimes, um, of whom I was mm-hmm. a big fan and with whom you were a longtime collaborator. Uh, I w- was lucky enough to get a chance to interview him um, once a number of years ago, but I don't have anywhere oh, yeah. near. Oh, wow, man. I'd love to check that out. Yeah, it's uh, it's there in the in the archives, but I'll send you the link uh, directly. But um, I would love to hear some of your thoughts uh, on Henry, who was just uh, you know one of those special and kind of <laughs> towering figures in the music. Yeah, I mean Henry was just uh, he was he he, he he wasn't one of us. That, that's the best way I can put it. I mean he really was uh, on another uh, plane, and that's not. I'm not trying to say that he was better than us or, or anything like that. He said he was, he was vibrating on a different vibration. <laughs> that's, that's the best way I can put it. He was a poet, you know, a poet in the music. I, I, I read something that William Parker wrote about him in the Wire magazine that really, really struck with me. He said, you know, to sort of paraphrase, he said, Henry could have played on every Blue Note record that came out. There's no other bass player you can think <laughs> of that could have played with Cecil Taylor and played with Sonny Rollins. You know, right. I mean, who else could have done that? <laughs> I mean, Henry could have literally played on every single Blue Note record and sounded amazing. I, I can think of no other, not just bass player, but just musician who who was on that sort of level that, that Henry was. The highlights so far of my music career have all been on the bandstand with, with Henry Grimes. I mean, he just, I don't even know, I don't have the words to really talk about it, to be honest with you, David. He was just an amazing, uh, amazing musician. And he was an incredible musician just to hang out with on the road. The thing about Henry is that he, he didn't talk a lot, you know, he could go uh, hours without saying a word. I remember being on an, on train with him for hours. And then he would say something, and it it would be like one or two sentences, and it would be like the deepest shit. <laughs> 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 like something really simple. And he, and he was really good at, at uh, uh, analogies. He would say like, you know, the way this the sky is looking now reminds me of something, you know. And he'd be like, "What? What did you just say?" And it would be, <laughs> you would think about it for for days, like, "What in the world?" You know. I mean, he was he was very poetic and uh, very spiritual, and, and he, was, he was just an amazing human being. And he was literally poetic. Uh, I have a right next to me on the shelf uh, where I'm sitting and recording this interview with you i have a book of his poetry um that i had him was lucky enough to get him to sign yeah. for me uh yeah I, I have that book too. i mean it's an amazing i mean you really see it's very similar to his playing very similar you know it, it, it's being able to uh, what's the word a uh, stream of consciousness i guess you know just these ideas that you're like well, how how is he making these connections but but it works you know it really does.
people are going to hear this in the beginning of June. We're recording it in the middle of May, and we're still in the midst of uh, everything with the pandemic. And everybody that I've interviewed in uh, in recent weeks, you know, has essentially had everything they were doing canceled, and they're they're trying to make the best of a weird situation. And so I'm just curious about what your um, you know what your life is like uh, as a musician these days. It, it, it's been uh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to put. So you know, like you, man, I, I'm a family guy. I got kids. I got I got uh, three girls. Two of them live with me, and I have an older daughter who will be in her senior year next year of high school. In the beginning, so I was touring with Jamie Branch. We played a gig at Roulette. We had a three week tour, uh, good money, you know. And after, like, I think Roulette was our third gig. We realized that's it, you know, everything's getting canceled. At that same time, actually, it was the same day, I got a call from my uh, from my stepmother telling me that my dad had terminal lung cancer. It all sort of hit at the same time. It was uh, confusing. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I wound up going to Arizona to spend uh, a little time with my dad even though I knew that that was probably not the wisest thing to do, but I just wanted to see him before he he passed away. Then I came back to Philly. So the thing for me is is, uh, when when I don't have a lot of free time, that's when I'm the most productive. My wife is working full-time. She she works for an advertising association, and I'm homeschooling both my kids in Philly. And I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? What, what, how am I going to keep productive? I wake up at 5.30, you know, before anybody wakes up. And I practice mostly uh, in Vera music. And then uh, my youngest kid, Essie, she wakes up usually around 8. And I uh, start doing the whole homeschooling routine with her. The kids go to bed usually around 8.39. Then I get into the studio, the little home studio I have, and work on composing and then uh, go to bed. <laughs> that's that's sort of my, my daily routine. <laughs> and I, I mean, you know, I don't get a lot of sleep. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I've been exhausted. <laughs> but I feel, you know, I, I do feel like very productive because uh, you know I, I get up early and uh, and and work on music. So economically, you know, I, I had work. It's really a drag, man. This is the first year ever where I had the entire year booked. I had tours booked from January to January every month. This is this is going to be my epic, you know, money making year. <laughs> Right. And everything, everything, I mean, the stuff in the fall hasn't been canceled yet, but I'm sure it will be. So that's been a real uh, drag. I, I've had, I'm supposed to be on 17 recordings coming out this year. I, I seriously doubt that's going to happen. Maybe, maybe half of the recordings will come out. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's tough. It, it's been hard. We're talking about the unknown. We just don't really know what's going to happen. People are saying, you know, maybe stuff in the fall, maybe people will be able to go on the road again in the fall. Other people are saying, no, it's not going to happen to the winter. Other people are saying, no, it's probably not going to be until next uh, summer 2021. 
But the reality is we just don't know. You know, things can change. You know, there could be another outbreak. So that that's the space we're living in. In a way, jazz musicians are really, at least the sort of jazz musicians that uh, I play with, we're used to that <laughs> anyway. <laughs> really good to unknown. I mean, you know, when we get on the gig, that's the sort of music we're playing. We're, we're dealing with, we don't know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Dealing with the unknown is something that um, a, a lot of people, a lot of musicians who I know deal with, you know, are comfortable with. But it just feels like this is taking it to the next <laughs> next level. Yeah, as opposed to we'll a see. discrete amount of, like, for the next two hours, let's deal with the unknown. This is, for an indeterminate amount of time, all of us together, <laughs> let's deal with the unknown. Mm-hmm. You're all on the gig right now, everybody on the planet Earth, <laughs> and we're not sure how many sets we have to play. Let's go. And, yeah, that's... Exactly. That makes let's it a little scary. Happen. It's next level. Yeah. Yeah. My guest on this episode uh, and long overdue return to the jazz session has been Chad Taylor. Uh, the new album is called The Daily Biological, features uh, Brian Settles and Neil Podgurski, and I love it, and I think you will too, so uh, check it out. Chad, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, obviously, <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, up and downs in your uh, life during this strange time, but I'm really glad you carved out some time um, to talk, and I'm really glad that we all get to hear the music that you're involved in creating. So thanks a lot, man. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Jason, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to this week's guest, Chad Taylor. Next week's show, the penultimate episode of Season 12, features trombonist Jeff Albert. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.